to do the wildlife viewing properly, you really have to understand the true nature of these animals. And that's something that you also want to uh, try to put forward to your guests. You want to dispel some of the myths that have been around for 100 years, such as the big bad wolves or any bear is, is, is out to eat you. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. Let's talk about the economy. That's always an exciting start to any conversation, right? So here's the thing. Events like Ontario's spring bear hunts are pursued by governments because they look at the financial impact of them. But here's the thing. Hunting and trapping aren't the only outdoor activities that bring in dollars to the province. In fact, ecotourism as a whole is a multi-billion dollar industry in both Ontario and British Columbia, and hunting is only a tiny fraction of the cash flow created in each. In the last episode of this show, we spoke about the spring bear hunt in Ontario, and if you haven't heard that episode, please do go back and listen to it. In this episode, we're talking about the wild world of ecotourism in general terms, through the experiences of an ethical and successful operator Eric Boyum. The owner-operator of Ocean Adventures on the coast of beautiful British Columbia, Eric and his partner-slash-photographer extraordinaire Trish take both local residents and international visitors to explore the coastline, see the beauty of the natural environment, and get a chance to witness and photograph stunning wildlife. Eric joined Defender Radio recently to discuss his business and experience, the opportunities that exist for people who have outdoor experience in the ecotourism sector, and the ethics and considerations he takes into account on a daily basis. Maybe the best place to start is with your story. Uh, you, You run a wonderful outfit in BC, and maybe we can just talk about how you sort of began on this journey of owning a business and operating as an ecotourism person. As a young, uh, a young boy growing up uh, in British Columbia, um, I was fortunate enough to um, live close to nature and be surrounded by nature, um, which started imprinting on, on me at a very early age. Uh, I began to spend a lot of time in the mountains, hiking, mountaineering, snowshoeing. Um, obviously, anytime we could ever see wildlife was a, a real bonus. But uh, for me, um, growing up was all about nature. Uh, I was very lucky to be exposed to the, and have the opportunity to uh, travel the coast of BC on, uh, by sailing vessels uh, in my late teens and early 20s, leading up to where I was working, crewing on boats, um, taking people to see Haida Gwaii, um, experiencing the, the sea life, uh, and the terrestrial wildlife that you would find in the islands of Haida Gwaii and on the coast of British Columbia. Uh, eventually, it led me to the, the place where I fell in love with taking people and showing them the amazing wilderness and wildlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked, continued to work for other people at times, uh, running tours, um, ecotourism tours on the coast of British Columbia. Um, and at times I ran hiking tours, um, for a couple of summers, um, in the Rocky mountains where 
we were often exposed to wildlife and I could see the joy it brought to people uh, to to witness these animals in their in their natural be state and their natural habitat. I did have a, a number of different uh, careers uh, um, as time went on. Mm-hmm. Um, I did delve into commercial fishing to the point where I even bought my own commercial salmon trawler and enjoyed the, the coast that way for about four or five years. Um, but I saw that that was changing too with the pressure on the resource um, and the difficulty in trying to make it work, what was happening uh, with the coastal fishing industries. And I had in the back of my mind, uh, wow, I want to stay on the water. I want to try to make a, a, a living um, being on the water, but experiencing what's on land, taking people to see these things. So um, in 1996, when I sold the salmon troller and got out of that business, um, I was without a boat for a year and I had sort of no way of accessing the, the beauty of the coast that I'd grown to love so much. Uh, but by 97, um, late 97, I had the opportunity to, to buy a, um, a certified passenger vessel capable of carrying, you know, up to eight guests for a week to 10 days at a time to, uh, explore the coast. So I formed a, formed a business, the same business I'm running today, 23 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an ecotourism company that's, that's doing very well. And we've had, um, I, I can't say the exact number of guests, but um, we've probably had well over a thousand guests from, uh, from all over the world. Um, guests from British Columbia, British or British Columbia, from the United States of America, all over Europe, as far away as New Zealand and Australia. It's incredible how far, from how far people come to see uh, sort of what a lot of us just take for advantage, I think. That's exactly true. And, you know, a lot of these places where people do come from, you know, Central Europe or the United Kingdom, they, they just don't have wild places anymore. Um and some of these places, you know, they've been, you know, their last wildlife or their last, you know, say, for example, their last bears were were extirpated, uh, you know, two or three hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they just don't have the ability to um, to go out uh, and enjoy the nature and to, to view wildlife, to experience wildlife and let the wildlife actually touch touch your soul and enhance your spirit it's it's got to be exciting too because a lot of my experience with larger wildlife so bears um, uh, moose animals like that whether it's here in Ontario or when I've been in BC or when I've been in Nova Scotia or somewhere else in our giant country uh, it's normally the animal running away from me like that's that's my experience with a lot of wildlife, uh, other than raccoons here in southern Ontario, uh, because I've been mugged by four of them. Um, okay. uh, not actually, they're fine. They're very nice, but um, it it is a, a certainly unique way uh, of presenting these opportunities to people. And I guess how do you how do you go about developing sort of a, a route or a uh, an outline for the adventure? to ensure that they get to see wildlife in nature 
naturally without crossing any ethical lines. And I'll let you talk about some of those ethical lines as well, because I know you and Trish are very, very uh, strongly uh, opinionated on some of these in a good way. Yes, well, um, you know, we plan our um, we plan our adventures for for our guests that come from all over the world. We plan them around the seasons and what's happening in the different places, uh, in the different habitats at different times of the year for the different species of wildlife. Um, we always uh, a big big thing for us is to um, to not disturb any of their normal behaviors. Mm-hmm. So we, we take that very seriously. Like we never want to interrupt or keep them from necessary feeding behaviors or keep them from their need to find a mate to reproduce. Um, we, um, we never want to um, have an encounter with an animal that will cause them to run away uh, in a, in a scared manner um, and potentially, um, you know, because they might be fleeing from something, they, they may miss something else that they're running right into and could be another hazard, potentially that's something that could affect their well-being, that could be injured or, you know, run into something that could hurt them. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're very careful about that. We, we work around the tides. Um, a lot of the... Um, the uh, behaviors of wildlife certainly on the coast we most our business is mostly run on the coast so so the the tides greatly influence the the daily behavior of the the wildlife we view um, yeah so there's a lot to learning it's not just taking out people and just hoping to see something and experiencing it um, there's a lot of things about uh, educating people about the uh what the animal's all about, their habits, their, their life cycle, the, what, um, what they need to survive. Um, also trying to get people to understand what, how they enrich our lives uh, as, as humans on this planet. Um, so we, um, our day-to-day roots are also will be affected by such things as are the, are the salmon, have the salmon made it into the creeks and the rivers providing food food for the animals and salmon don't just feed the bears uh so much more than that the the salmon the arrival of the salmon every fall it um it basically feeds everything in the great bear rainforest from from eagles to um small terrestrial wildlife and mink and uh and wolves and uh the gulls and the the salmon is the lifeblood of the coast really Mm -hmm. um but it also creates some incredible uh, wildlife viewing opportunities. To do the wildlife viewing properly as well, um, you, you really have to understand um, the true nature of these animals. And that's something that you also want to uh, try to put forward to your guests to, to really make them understand. To You want to dispel some of the myths that have been around for 100 years, such as you know, one of the biggest is the big bad wolves or, mm. you know, any bear is, is, is out to eat you. And, you know, you just have to, you just have to play dead and hope it doesn't eat you. You know, these, these are myths that get perpetrated and often get perpetrated by hunters who want to sort of 
somehow continue the justification to uh, to hunt these uh, predators. So we're, we educate people not only about the wildlife themselves, but um, also the um, all the other factors that uh, could be good or could be bad uh, in terms of the the, the ongoing well-being of, of the wildlife. I got to think that for the guests who hear from you and see how you talk about wildlife and how you engage nature around you, that as well is going to be very empowering for them to, I, I think, I, I definitely agree, sort of lose that fear that, and it's it's not always something you can identify that you have um, until maybe you see one of these animals. But there is a lot of fear. I see that, of course, with conflict wildlife all the time. People reacting incredibly uh, to raccoons in their backyard or a coyote trotting down the woods. Um, but I think it also will teach maybe a level of respect. And that's something we hear a lot about, too, is this need to educate people on how to appropriately engage wildlife. And by engage, I mean view and not interact with. Uh, so I... I have to think that simply the way you speak and present yourself has a positive impact on visitors to either just your ship or our country as a whole. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, the way my I am myself when I'm guiding people or if I have an assistant guide, how we come across to our people can, can totally change the outcome of the whole viewing experience you know like we could be you know i could be talking about us watching a grizzly bear across the estuary and i could say you know everyone be still absolutely this bear could charge us at any time and you know we could we would really have to you know get in the zodiac class and get out of here i could talk like that or you know i could what i do is i portray i say you know i I size up what that grizzly's doing. Is the grizzly feeding? Um, is it running from something? Is it coming towards us? The biggest thing is, does it know we're here? Or is it unaware of us? Anyways, I just still and calm. All animals, they have this innate sense of either fear or calm. And that's going to, uh, to a large part, affect how... Um, and they may react around uh, our presence there. So, yes, it's extremely important that um, right from the start, before we leave the boat, as the boat's heading up the coast, and I'm talking to the guests, we're, we still aren't seeing wildlife on land. We're you know, you know, start to start to start that dialogue where I'm saying that you know, put away your myths that you know you have to fear bears, you have to fear wolves. Um, you know, what we're going to take you to see, hopefully, because there's no guarantees in that you will see wildlife. But through our years of experience, we have a good idea where to be at the different times of year, and we have had good success. And But there, there is no guarantee. But hopefully, if we see this, we're going to put forward a real calm, relaxed approach um, to our interactions with the animals. Um that being said, say we have a, a great viewing experience and we're heading back to the, the boat at the end of the day to have a meal or whatever, you know, a poor guide might say, you know, like we were so close to that bear that it could have came and got us any time. 
you know, that's ridiculous. If the bear did get closer than maybe some people were comfortable with, we say it's because that bear actually felt comfortable around us. Maybe it has had good interactions with, with other wildlife viewers. And uh, so the bear isn't having this ongoing fear of every time it sees a human that it thinks it's, its life is at risk. So, yes, going back to what you initially said, it's very important how um, a guide or a, a tourism company sort of portrays this experience uh, of, of wildlife viewing. It, it's, it sounds like such a grand adventure. And I, I've spoken with you about this in the past. I've spoken with folks like John Marriott, who does photography tours and other tours in Alberta. I've talked with folks here in Ontario and out east. And there's this, this love for what you do that's really enjoyable to hear about. Uh, and I think, I, I don't want to dive too deeply into this, but one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about this now is because a, a conversation that keeps coming up is the importance to economics of some of these consumptive activities. By consumptive activities, I mean hunting, trapping, et cetera, things where you take away from the ecosystem and the environment you're in. Um, and that, of course, can happen too with, with photographers or hikers who are not exercising sound judgment in nature. One of the things that I'd like to broach, there's sort of two parts here. One is the transference of skills. Um, because I think ecotourism, I mean, we're seeing it as a booming industry in BC, in Ontario and elsewhere. Uh, the data I have in front of me right now from 2012 visitors to Northern Ontario. So just Northern Ontario spent $1.5 billion in 2012. Um, and in BC, I've got a $15 billion visitor economy employing approximately 127,000 500 people. And this is from 2017 from the, uh, it's a BC chamber website. I think it's, it was written by the tourism, uh, tourism industry association of BC. Yeah. So there's a lot of money and there's a lot of growth. Um, but when we talk about sort of once you're out in nature, the skills I think from other consumptive activities probably can be quite helpful. Uh, like if you've learned how to watch wildlife or how to track wildlife, that's something that is valuable in this business. Is that correct or accurate? Um, well, just from being outdoors, uh, you will learn skills. Um, you know, I can't say that I've ever been in the, the woods with someone that was a trapper. So I, I haven't learned skills from that. Uh, um, I haven't really spent too much time... I have been in the woods with hunters, but not while anyone's been hunting, except uh, I've been there while I've caught poachers uh, mm. out on one of our tours. And, um, you know, so I had to approach a fellow with a, uh, a big rifle on his back who was doing an illegal activity. He was baiting bears here in British Columbia, trying to get a grizzly bear, and baiting bears is illegal. And anyways, we, we were able to catch him in the act and get photos and it led to a conviction. So, but I personally haven't, can't say that I've learned from those skills. Now, someone who maybe is a hunter and maybe they've seen the light and maybe they are a guide outfitter and they, you know, they just 
for whatever reason, they don't want to do it anymore, or hopefully they've come to the senses and realized that the value of living wildlife as opposed to killing wildlife. Um, but they might see that, uh, and there are a few cases around where they'd see there's, there's more economic value in actually taking people to see wildlife than there is to going out and killing them. So they would have obviously skills for, for sort of locating wildlife and mm-hmm. you know, understanding their seasonal habits and migrations or, so yeah, they would have a, they would have some skills there from their previous uh, previous enterprise, I guess you would call it. But that's uh, a very polite way of saying it. Thank you. I would not have been able yeah, to come I up mean, with that as quickly. <laughs> you, you, I, I mean, I'm totally against it. It disgusts me mm-hmm. uh, that people will have a business where they take bring people from all over the world to to come here to locate our wildlife and to kill it. Um, it, it disgusts me. So I'm not trying to be polite in any way about it. Um, so just answering your question about, there are some skills there that could be useful. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other ways to learn skills though, without ever having been in that where you're setting traps for small fur bearing animals or your trophy hunting top level predators or Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, I'm just um, thinking of people who are in that field or have that background and perchance wanted to transition out of it, as we said. Um, they would be able to carry over some skills they already have. Absolutely. Those yeah. those people involved in, in that type of business, would they would have skills there that, that would help them uh, form a, a, you know, an ecotourism company, potentially. Um, the biggest thing for them, I think, would be not so much the challenge of, you know, not shooting the animal uh, or the animals, but shooting them with a camera. Mm. I think their biggest thing would have to be just a mega shift in their mind and their, the psychology, because everything they've done up to that point as a guide outfitter or a trophy killer is it's been about the kill. And if you go into the the natural habitat with sort of emanating that sort of um, feeling, or if that's how you travel in the wilderness, you're not going to get the experience uh, with, uh, with the wildlife. Because like I said before, the, the wildlife have an innate sense of what's, what's in your mind, even though they're not planning on killing them, but every time they got, went into the woods for so many years, they had that mindset. And maybe just because they're taking people with cameras to photograph or experience maybe they still have that mindset towards the animals like i'm better than these animals i'm the supreme one here so yeah they would have to they might not have to learn the tracking skills or knowing the locations of the wildlife but they would have to just do a a real mind shift to go to i want to portray to my guests that are coming from all over the world that these are magnificent animals they deserve a right to be here. They're sentient beings. They have feelings. They feel pain. You know, so that's their learning curve, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a wonderful point. And hopefully we'll see that shift over time. I uh, I interviewed some folks um, whose names I can't recall, but they run a company uh, called Crikey. And they, with the Ellen DeGeneres Fund, created this 
virtual reality, sorry, augmented reality, not virtual reality, augmented reality gorilla habitats um, as a conservation project. And in studying this kind of stuff using augmented reality and virtual reality, they showed that you can actually grow empathy in people by allowing them to experience things in a safe way. And I think that's fascinating. And maybe that's what we'll see as part of this, um, is that when people are allowed to experience it and just enjoy it and witness it and see the majesty of it, um, we'll get that change. But there's a, an uphill battle. Now, for people who are interested in this, I have sort of two businessy questions and I will not ask you for any details about your business model etc all of that is proprietary and does not need to be shared but the two things top of mind one is seasonality is there a concern uh, or is there a way to balance now of course for you I think the seasons are maybe less drastic than they are in other parts of the country Um, based on what I've been told by my parents who grew up in northern Manitoba Uh, You know, there's mosquitoes the size of houses that'll carry you away and summer is 500 degrees and winter is minus 400 degrees. So that sounds pretty severe here in Ontario. Of course, we range our temperature, you know, 60 degrees from summer to winter. Um, Is there a way to ensure some kind of balance through that seasonality Uh, and sort of as an aside of that? uh, Actually, you know, let's just start with that one. How, How do you kind of make sure that you don't top load or bottom load um, your scheduling so that you you can do this year round? Or is it something that for a lot of people, it's going to be seasonal? Well, I think um, for a lot of people, it is seasonal. Um, And when the season is on, you're, it's, it's, you're pretty full on involved um, actually being out in the field. Um, So, you know, like our particular season is, you know, it's uh, where we're actually running tours can be from April until middle of October, potentially even a little bit later than that. So there's a there's a full six months there where we have uh, just the right mix here for taking people to experience all sorts of different wildlife uh, in different locations, um, uh, exhibiting different behaviors. So now... As any business owner knows, um, there's a lot more to the business than just, you know, running the trip to take people or, you know, if you're in retail, it's, there's a lot more to just making that sale at the counter. There's so much goes on behind the scenes of the business that even though I'm only taking tours for six months of the year, um, a good portion of my, the winter months is spent um, with the everything else that needs to be done with, with the business um, meetings with meetings with local first nation, annual meetings with local first nations uh, with the, with the various parks, uh, British Columbia park system, the um, national park system, as we do operate in Guayanas, which is a, a Canadian national park. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have marketing, you have working on your assets, you know, for us working on our vessel, um, you, you have tax time. So could you effectively run this business running tours 12 months a year? Um, for us, we have a big focus on wildlife with our biggest focus on bears. So bears tend to hibernate yeah. for uh, a good, uh, a large part of the time that we're actually not running tours. So that's kind of convenient. We're not sort of missing out there. 
Um, that being said, if, if you are starting up a, a bear viewing operation in uh, northern Ontario, um, you know, and um, watching bears in the uh, black bears in the, in the spring, summer, and fall, well, if you want to extend that, um, you know, you could, you don't have to stay right in your base place. You, you know, tourism companies, a lot of tourism companies will offer tours all around the world or they will, you know, different parts of the country. So if you were really uh, doing a bear viewing operation, black bears in Northern Ontario in the spring, fall, summer, you could take people to watch the polar bears in the winter because mm-hmm. the polar bears don't hibernate. Um, you could do tours, you know, work with a lodge up uh, near Churchill or, you know, uh, it's quite possible that you could take some of your, your guests, your clientele that have been with you to watch black bears. You talk to them about the amazing polar bears and great polar bear viewing you can have in winter, the shoulder seasons of the winter, uh, you know, when the ice flows are out, um, you know, the polar bears are, are more active. So, yeah, you can, there are ways to make it not so seasonal, um, if that's your desire. Um, you could also potentially, have, you know, like, not all our trips focus all around wildlife. It's a lot about the wilderness as well. Um, so, northern Ontario, uh, I guess you could get up to where you could... Um, have some great uh, northern lights viewing. Oh yeah. So if you if you're willing to expand your horizons, uh, you know I think uh, you can you can keep your ecotourism company pretty active throughout the year. Yeah, that's that's those are great points. And I was even thinking too. One thing that some tour operators do um, is uh, photography as a side business. Um, you know, if you are a good photographer and you are going out on these tours and you take pictures when you're out on these tours, you can spend your January, if you don't have any other business, setting up your photos for prints and for other things to make some extra money. Um, you know, like there's there's lots of options, I think, when you really take off the blinders of this is the only way to do it. Uh, and I think those are, those are all really wonderful ideas, too, uh, that hopefully will help some people. And the other thing I wanted to ask in this vein is what tips would you give to someone who is interested in getting into this business? Whether it is someone who just lives in a remote area and has always been interested in this, someone who has gone through your kind of experience where they've been in and out and around the subject, or someone who's coming from a consumptive industry and is curious about making the switch. Where where do you think people should start? Well, I, I think people should start um, trying to learn more about um, the existing type of businesses they're looking at getting into, like the, you know, wildlife viewing, bear viewing is very well established here in British Columbia. So maybe someone wanting to get into it is going to contact a company. Maybe they're going to come and try to work for that company just as a, as an assistant of some sort or coming in on a, a lower level type of position. You know, obviously they're not going to come in and be a guide right away. You know, just somehow experience uh, and try to see, try to see what's going on. Try to understand what's available, what it's going to take to put yourself in a position where you could start. And most people will be willing to uh, 
get you going on um, in the right direction. Maybe you take a, a wildlife viewing course. Uh, there's specific bear viewing courses here in British Columbia that one can take um, where, and they're happening in many of the different parts of the province um, where people can learn to become the, a level one assistant bear guide um, and get exposed there. So there's, there's certifications that are available. Obviously, if you're gonna go to the point of, of starting a business, well, you're going to need um, to go to the areas, l l learn about the specific area mm -hmm. uh, that you want to start up your business. Um, if you know that you want, say, for example, want to work on the central coast of British Columbia doing some sort of wildlife tours, you're going to, you're going to want to go and approach the First Nations of the territories that you would like to visit and see, this is what I'm thinking. You know, is there a chance... We could work together. Um, you know, I, I would like to feel welcomed in your territory. Potentially, utilize uh, some of the some of your um, residents that uh, could could work uh, on a part time basis for my company, um, guiding using obviously people that have lived in the territory uh, where you would like to do your business, where they've. Gener you know they're from generations and generations uh, of life there in those exact habitats. That's an incredible resource to draw into. But it's also it's also the right thing to do is to to not just start a business and start go into some area and and um, intend to try to make a profit off of on someone else's land or off the wildlife that inhabit this area. So you want to engage the First Nations. You're going to want, if you're going to be working in some sort of protected area, you're going to have to um, have initial conversations with the the uh, parks branch, um, whether it's uh, provincial parks uh, branch or the um, national parks branch. You can't just go and start operating in a park without any permits. So you want to know, you know, are they even giving out permits? So you want to know if if starting your business is even going to be possible in, in these certain areas. So you want to work with the First Nations, you want to work with the, the governing parks branches, and then and you want to try to work with the other operators too. Like um, often in an, an established area, there's, there's best practices obviously to follow. Um, if you come into an area and you are pushing wildlife around and uh, there's other operators watching this, if there's good operators watching this, you, you know, the, the word's going to get out pretty quickly that you're not doing things right. And really you should either move on or, you know, come into the fold so we can all do this together sustainably. And, and that's really important because if, if tourism, ecotourism, it, it sounds good, ecotourism, but, there's such a thing as industrialized ecotourism as well. And if ecotourism is not done properly, it, it can have um, as damaging effects as, as hunting on wildlife. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if a type of animal is continually being pushed um, and uh, is not able to do all the feeding it needs, you know, every day of every year, uh, if it's not hibernating, um, it is 
going to gradually get weaker and weaker and, you know, potentially face starvation. In the case of bears who have this amazing capability of embryonic dyspause or what's also called delayed implantation, is if that, if that mama bear has been fertilized uh, during mating in the spring, uh, if she hasn't put on enough weight by the fall, that fertilized zygote is, is going to be just reabsorbed into the body. It will not implant and she will not have young. So hmm. if this happens year after year, you're going to see the numbers of the, the bears in the area go down. So the, you can't, the, with the, you cannot continually push these animals because it will, it will affect their well-being. Another example is one type of tourism is not compatible with an animal or an animal's habitat. I mean, we look at what's going on in the, in the, the Selkirks and the, the Rocky yes. Mountains of British Columbia with, with um, the, this booming tourism business. They sometimes will call it ecotourism, but snowmobiling. Uh, a lot of people do it recreationally just for their own enjoyment, but there's also snowmobile companies. There's commercial huge heli-ski operations. And a lot of these, a lot of this takes place in the prime winter ranges of the mount, endangered mountain caribou. I mean, we are so close to losing the very last mountain caribou, but this tourism is allowed to go on unchecked uh, in these absolutely key uh winter ranges of the mountain caribou. So uh, you have to look at what type of tourism you're wanting to start, but is it compatible with what's going on in the whole overall scheme of the ecosystem? So I think one thing that's really important to us in our business that we've, we've you know, we're approaching 25 years of, of uh, doing this business. And one thing that every year becomes more and more important to us. And that is giving back, giving back to the wildlife, uh, the wilderness. You not only uh, sh should take people to see these things, but you have to give back. You have to work hard to, to protect it. If there's an increase in, a planned increase in hunting or you want to fight hard to stop the hunting of a species in a, in any area or actually anywhere in the planet you want to i think it's key for any companies existing or starting up to realize that a big part of this is you have to become a voice for the animals a voice for the land you can't just take you just can't take you have to put in the time um and uh, be a, a, a good conservationist. You have to work hard. You have to support different organizations that are just working tirelessly uh, for very little uh, monetary return, usually just enough to keep going. A lot of, like, hundreds of, and if not thousands of volunteers all across the world are, are working hard um, in good organizations to try to protect the wildlife, the wild places for all future generations. So you have to be supportive of these organizations. You have to be supportive, give a voice to the animals. And uh, 
and it, it'll make the whole experience of, of running this type of business uh, that much more satisfying. Well, and that brings up uh, a couple of things I was wondering about, and you've kind of already now nailed this. Little things like um, uh, considering, so with, with your vessel, uh, noise pollution and how that's going to impact the wildlife. Uh, I know you're very conscious of that. But then even further, um, you know, when we start getting into more questionable activities, there was a story, uh, I'm sure you remember this in, in the show notes, I'll find what I wrote about it at the time and link it, uh, up near Churchill, I think it was, in Manitoba, uh, where someone had both their sled dogs chained outside and fed polar bears to attract them so people could come take pictures. And one day he didn't feed the polar bears, so the polar bears took the food that was available, which was one of the sled dogs that was chained up and couldn't get away. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's a horrifying story, really, uh, that just days before the media had been lauding is, look how cute it is that these bears are interacting with these sled dogs. Uh, but that's, I think it both highlights the impact that bad ecotourism can have, but also the kind of thing people need to be wary of. Um, and you've already broached the subject and nailed it. Uh, and this comes up with every single person I speak with who interacts with wildlife in some way, like you do, of when you interrupt their natural way of being, it is no longer okay. Um, and those are sort of the extremes from the consideration of how much noise are we making over to literally setting up animals to fail uh, in the wild. So I'm very glad you brought those up as well. Um, now, and regarding, though, people who are interested in experiencing this, um, while there are sort of those horror stories and also wonderful stories, how what, what's the easiest way to suss out if this place is ethical or if their values align with your values? Um, and to ensure that the experience will be enjoyable for, for a client. For, for a client, I, I think you have, to be, you have to be educated on what is important to you and what are the, the needs of the ecosystem and the wildlife. So, but be prepared to ask questions. Be prepared to shop around if you are looking for an experience to witness the amazing polar bears. Um, you know, don't just go with the first company that comes up when you Google polar bear tours in Churchill, mm -hmm. because they might, that doesn't mean they're the best. It might mean that they have the biggest advertising budget yep. and they can pay the most for that top spot. It, it does by no means uh, um, correlate to how ethical that operation is or, you know, are they a, a good good at following best practices or do they put the animals first or not? So you have to really do the research, um, phone, ask sort of key questions like, um, you know, ask the marketing people, uh, try to determine, you know, do they, are, do, are they saying silly things like we guarantee you sightings of this and we guarantee we'll get you closer than any other operator you know, um, these kind of things should be red flags. Okay, so call it a little bit about your own intuition, but listen to what the different operators have to say. Um, uh, if you're really concerned about it, and everybody should be, because everyone has the potential to impact wildlife, do some research about not talking to the companies, but going on to... Um, maybe some different wildlife viewing organizations. Look at 
their best practices, look at some of their rules uh, for their member companies, and then ask that member company, you know, what is the group size going to be? Um, what uh, when we're in the when we're out on the estuary, potentially in grizzly bear habitat, can we have food with us? Or you know, like if they say, yeah, we're going to be out there and we're going to have you know a salmon barbecue while we're <laughs> waiting for bears, that's you know that's that's a bad thing. But yeah, you, you have to do some research, um, and certainly there's a lot of um, good information out there. There's some good um obviously some great uh um books have been written by people such as Charlie Russell and um there's there's a lot of info so yes i i would just say be prepared to to research companies if you know if you're once once someone gets into sort of like a lot of our guests um sort of do a lot of wildlife viewing or in different parts of the world and, uh, you know, they might, they might do two or three trips a year and, you know, they're meeting people in on the plains in Africa or they're up in Svalbard watching polar bears uh, or they're down at the tip of South America hoping to see uh, orcas. Um, but they'll talk to other world travelers and they might say, oh, yeah, I'd like to go to the Great Bear Rainforest or you know, have you been there? Oh, yes, we went with this company and we didn't like it because the groups were too big and we felt they pressured the bears or we went with this company and uh, they totally respected the wildlife. We we had a great experience and we walked away. We learned a lot um, about all the things we saw. So if you are a sort of a person who's looking for sort of wildlife wilderness experiences. Yeah. If you can ask others that have been on various tours, you can learn a lot. To find out more about Eric Boyum and ocean adventures, visit oceanadventures.bc.ca or click the links in this week's show notes. And here's a fun little tip. If you book a trip with Ocean Adventures and tell them you heard about it from Defender Radio or the Fur Bears, a portion of your pre-tax cost will be donated to the Fur Bears. That's pretty sweet, right? Just visit oceanadventures.bc.ca to find out more about booking a trip. I want to thank Eric for his time, Trish for the beautiful photo on this week's episode art, and all of you for listening. Remember to follow me on social media at Defender Radio on Facebook and Twitter and at Howie Michael on Instagram to see what I'm up to, find out about upcoming contests and interviews, and see photos of the cutest Hamilton hound. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.